0: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, Barbie is the most explicitly feminist movie ever made and it grossed $774 million worldwide in its first 10 days. In the same period, Oppenheimer made $400 million worldwide. John Powers will discuss this summer's two big Hollywood hits. But first, The felonies faced by Donald Trump continue to multiply, but Republicans still want him as their candidate. Joan Walsh will comment in a minute. One introductory note. After this segment was recorded, Special Counsel Jack Smith announced the charges he was bringing against Trump. Three conspiracies, one to defraud the United States, a second to obstruct an official government proceeding, and a third to deprive people of civil rights, namely the right to vote. Trump is also charged with a fourth count of obstructing an official proceeding. All are felonies. Donald Trump this month will be facing four indictments for crimes in four different jurisdictions at the same time. That level of legal exposure would put most mafia bosses to shame. For comment, we turn to Joan Walsh. She's national affairs correspondent for the magazine. She's been a commentator on MSNBC and CNN. She's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the LA Times. And she served as editor of Salon for six years. We reached her today at home in Manhattan. Joan, welcome back. Thanks, John. Great to be with you. Well, Trump had already been charged with felonies in two separate cases, and two more are likely this month. If that will happen, Trump will have to spend much of the next year traveling up and down the eastern seaboard, defending himself in courtrooms in New York, Washington, Atlanta, and Fort Lauderdale, while he's campaigning for the presidency. Uh, Let's start with last week's news about the Mar-a-Lago case involving classified documents. The special counsel last week informed Trump about new federal criminal charges for his seeking to delete security camera footage at Mar-a-Lago. This brings the total number of charges in that one case to 40. Starting with holding on to classified documents, including conspiracy to obstruct the government's repeated attempts to reclaim the classified material, the new charges, you wrote, in The Nation were a bit of a letdown. Why was that for anyone else in America? Being charged by federal prosecutors with three felonies would be a life-changing disaster.
1: Yeah, it's a big deal, and these these charges do put him even in deeper trouble, but he was already very much on track to be going to jail for a long time. So I I couldn't get all that excited. Also, like most people, I was waiting for uh, indictments related to January 6th. And we don't know exactly what they're going to be, but there almost certainly will be some. And I've said all along, every one of his crimes matters, you know, that Alvin Bragg got to him first and it was business fraud charges uh, you know you know he would probably just pay a fine people were let down by that I said no it's a good thing just let the system work. I still feel that but I think there's no way around feeling like the biggest crime is attempting to overthrow our democracy yeah I think we're all consciously or, or not really waiting for that one and to see exactly what he charges because what we've learned from from uh you know Jack Smith's first two steps out into the spotlight he's very thorough he's a good writer when he unseals his indictments he does it uh with a certain amount of the- theatricality i mean a modest amount but eno- enough so that he's telling a story he's not leaving it to legalese and check footnote 17 on page 37 no it's all it's all there he has trump and trump's own words he has his co-conspirators in their own words uh and i think this newest one is very serious because he his newest co-defendant the property manager is now quoted saying to uh, uh, another co-worker who's not charged uh the boss wants us to delete the servers where all of the uh security footage showing them moving the documents was stored.
0: Yeah, I learned from your piece that uh, someone drained a swimming pool at Mar-a-Lago that flooded the servers that stored the surveillance cam footage. But I guess that could happen to any of us.
1: Oh, who among us hasn't done that, right? <laughs> I mean, no, it's hilarious, and I mentioned it, but it's not part of the. It's not part of this action. It. My safest bet would be that they tried to do it, but it didn't work. But it, it's really quite the coincidence. Mm-hmm. that that would happen uh and it was by the same this new the new um co-defendant carlos de Oliveira, uh he was the one who is said to have, have mistakenly done that
0: reminds some of us of the 18-minute gap in the watergate tapes also in in atlanta last week fulton county district attorney fanny t willis told the media she plans to announce a charging decision in the Georgia uh, vote count case, during the first three weeks of August, she said, quote, "The work is accomplished. We've been working for two and a half years. We are ready to go." close quote. Presumably, the charge would be conspiracy to commit election fraud. How strong is the evidence in that case?
1: Well, I think all of us feel who've heard who've heard his conversation with the se- Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad who who is a Republican feel like it's that alone is uh is pretty amazing evidence uh but she's also talked to a whole lot of other people both in uh Fulton County and connected with Fulton County elections procedures as well as Trump allies and co co-cons- possible co-conspirators so she's done her homework she's she's done a lot and uh you know she's interviewed phony electors uh from other states you know she's really Like Smith, she seems to have her hands on a number of different ways that that this could have played out.
0: Elsewhere on the legal front, of course, Trump, his whole career, has filed his own lawsuits against people who are after him in court. But a federal judge has thrown out Trump's $475 million defamation lawsuit against CNN, The network had said Trump's claims of election fraud were quote, the big lie, close quote. Trump sued because he said the phrase the big lie associated him unfairly with Hitler. Uh, Just a quote from his legal documents here. he, He said it was quote, a deliberate effort by CNN to propagate an association between the plaintiff and one of the most repugnant figures in modern history," close quote. The judge in the case had actually been nominated by Trump in 2019. He sits in federal court in Fort Lauderdale, not far from Mar-a-Lago. His ruling uh, declared that CNN's words were opinion, not fact, and therefore could not be the subject of a defamation claim. I Googled Trump and Hitler, And got 17 million results. So apparently it's not just CNN that has had this idea. No, I think it's a good idea not to hang around with Nazis if you don't
1: want to get compared to Hitler and not to call white supremacists and and actual Nazis good people when they march to protect Confederate statues. I think that Trump has only himself to blame for the many, many associations with Hitler, it was widely said that he had a copy of Mein Kampf on his on his bedside table when he was married to his first wife Ivana. I never saw it there, so I can't you know, I can't testify. But uh, it, it's it's not it's not shocking.
0: And we also learned that Trump's pack has spent more than. million on legal costs this year. That's the last six months for himself and many other people whose legal bills he's paying. The PAC is called Save America. It is spending more on his legal defense than it is on anything in his presidential campaign. And the $40 million in legal expenses is more than Trump's campaign raised in the second quarter of 2023. It brings his post-presidential legal spending by his pack to $56 million. And everybody knows the cost of providing lawyers for himself and the dozens of other people who uh, he's trying to help are going to continue to mushroom. The trials haven't even begun yet, and those uh, those are expensive. My favorite charge against Trump is mail fraud and wire fraud. Trump defrauding not the United States, but his own supporters. Because after the election, he appealed to these his donors, sometimes 25 times a day, to help fight the election results in court and contribute to a defense fund. But there was no defense fund. Uh, he used the money that they contributed for other purposes. So Trump's crimes include defrauding his own supporters. They don't seem to mind. They really don't seem to mind. But Jack Smith is set to mind. This could
1: be one of the charges that Jack Smith brings. He really seems to be tracking that money and and the claims that were made about it and now the way that it's that it's being used. So he's not out of the woods here with any of these things that, that are possibly illegal.
0: The big one, as you said, will be when Trump goes on trial for attempting to seize power through fraud and force on January 6th. As you've said, we're not quite sure what the charges, the exact charges, will be. Seems now like that trial could take place during election year, almost certainly after the primaries, uh, but possibly before election day in 2024. What effect have the dozens of felony charges against Trump had thus far on his standing with Republican voters?
1: They have not hurt him one bit if arguably they've helped him. You know, he's really opened up an enormous lead over Ron DeSantis, who, you know, was really surging earlier this year. Now, DeSantis's problem is DeSantis. It's not it's not so much what's going on with Trump, but Trump's numbers right now are a bit higher than they've been for a while. He's he's up over 50 percent among Republic, likely Republican primary voters. There was a New York Times poll today, New York, New York Times Siena poll, very reliable, although national polls in a process where it, that, that initially starts state by state aren't always the best way to get a look at uh, the, the dynamics, but the individual state level polls aren't much better for DeSantis, or for anybody else, Trump is really not being hurt. And I, I've listened to folks on the right, but never Trumpers, not pro Trumpers, but folks on the right who say, well, you know, just because this is true now doesn't mean it will always be true. Of course, I can't say it'll always be true, but it, there is a scenario in which, especially given that the January 6th charges are likely to be. Just kind of gnarlier and more violent, okay? Maybe not with his own hands, beating policemen with flags and you know spraying mace and and you know bear gas and everything else. I think you know if, if people are really forced to dwell, which they should be, on the the carnage that day, who was injured, who died, the nature of their injuries. I think that that might have some sobering effect, but I have said that before, and nothing has made a difference so far.
0: So the New York Times poll that came out uh, this weekend, Monday, seemed to make it clear that Trump is so far ahead, and this is yeah. looking at the history of primary polling, that he's right now, we can say, almost certain to win the Republican nomination. The Republican National Convention is not until July 15th, and at that point we we certainly will know the charges on January 6th. The trial probably will not have started, so at the convention he will probably be indicted, but not convicted. What do you think Trump's acceptance speech will be about?
1: American carnage again and again and again, and how electing him is the way to protect not only him, but good people that have been harmed by this legal process. He'll be able to pardon people. I, I think he'll he will not hide from these charges at all. He You know, he will revel in them. Uh, I, I think he considers all of this, all of his legal troubles, part of his brief for, you know, why he must be restored.
0: We've talked about how these charges are not hurting Trump at all with his base in the Republican Party, seem to be even helping him. If we look at the rest of the electorate, he'll be running for president, charged with dozens of felonies, maybe some convictions uh, by election day. His one chance of avoiding jail time and convictions would be to get elected, pardon himself or order the attorney general to drop whatever charges are are underway. Uh, So that will be the logic of his campaign. Last time he lost by 7 million votes. I wonder whether people who did not vote for him in 2020 will become supporters of his after dozens of felony indictments and maybe some trials underway. Is this going to get him more votes than he had in 2020?
1: Well, you know, he got more votes in 2020 than he did in 2016, which uh, which surprised me at the time. So there are a lot of people out there who I don't know and who are doing crazy things with their votes uh, and harbor a real malice toward the country that we are becoming. I just can't help but think that it will hurt him with average voters, with people who maybe did vote for him in 2016, but not in 20. I don't see what makes them go back to him after that. Most of these questions about how much how much does this bother you? They look really different among independents. Independents are very bothered by the charges. So obviously Democrats have made up their mind, but I, I think for both sides, this is gonna be kind of a rallying cry. Disaffected voters, are going to be told, you've just got to come out. You can't take the risk that this guy becomes president again and, and pardons his cronies, pardons himself. If, he can. if you're not loving, you're not feeling Biden right now, This is th- there's going to be a specific campaign, I think, to get those people to the ballot box. And I think that they'll do it. I think that this is just an existential threat to our democracy.
0: And, and let's remember that in the midterms, in 2022, Virtually every Republican candidate who was a Trump election denier and who ran in a truly contested election went down to defeat. Right. Right. It didn't work in 2022. It didn't.
1: He wasn't on the ballot, they'll say, but it didn't work. And I think it will only be more so. I think the number of even Republicans who are going to be saying, we've got to move on from this
0: is going to grow. So charging Trump with crimes for the January 6th insurrection is the final guarantee that 2024 will be more a referendum on Trump than a referendum on Biden, it seems to me. And it seems to me that is a good thing for Democrats.
1: It is because of the built-in, baked-in bias against Biden largely because of his age. I think it's unfortunate in certain ways. I just the economy is astonishingly hot right now and you know wages are up and inflation is coming down. It's it's hard for me to believe that Democrats don't have a great story to tell, but I think that fear of Trump is probably a bigger and better motivator than thanks Joe or thanks Bidenomics. I mean, I think they're going to you know they're running on a lot of different messages, and they're certainly out front publicizing what their record is. They're not hiding from it, nor should they. But I, I, I just feel that the overwhelming issue in the general is going to be, do what you have to do to get the, keep that man out of the White House again.
0: Joan Walsh can read her piece. Trump's legal nightmare just got even worse at thenation.com. Thank you, Joan.
2: for the ones who get it done.
0: The Barbie movie, in its first 10 days, made $774 million worldwide. In the same period, Oppenheimer made $400 million worldwide. Together, that's more than a billion dollars in 10 days. For comment on this summer's two gigantic Hollywood hits, we turn to John Powers. He is critic at large on the NPR show Fresh Air with Terry Gross, where he has something like 5 million listeners. He's worked for 25 years as a critic and columnist, first for the LA Weekly, then for Vogue. His work has also appeared in The Washington Post, The New York Times, and The Nation. John, welcome back. Glad to be here. Well, you and I are not exactly the target audience for Barbie, the doll or the movie, but we still have opinions and ideas. What did you think of the Barbie movie?
3: I think it was probably about as good as a Barbie movie could be. <laughs> okay. you, know, you know, you know, starting from the premise that you're having to make a film about a com- a consumer product, who- whose owners or controllers will, in some way stop you from doing certain things if you make something too wildly subversive. I thought, you know, it was filled with good jokes. It was high spirited. I, you know, it was bright pink, and I liked that. It wasn't stupid. In all of those ways, I, I had a good time. I mean, I would just add that it's so much better than so many of other, the other movies that are coming out that now, once we start attacking it or at least criticizing, it, <laughs> we, we should at least acknowledge the fact that this is a film about a doll that The Nation podcast can talk about and not feel stupid
0: in talking about it. <laughs> Well, I thought the movie was loads of fun. I agree that it was hilarious. It was smart. It was, let's also add, the most explicit feminist movie ever made, I think. I have one basic problem with this movie. It ignores what made Barbie the doll special. Barbie has breasts. Barbie has blonde hair. Barbie is tall and thin. And feminists for decades have argued that Barbie encourages girls to hate their bodies. And scientific research says it does have that effect on girls. But the movie winks at all that by having our protagonist describe herself as stereotypical Barbie. And she learns a lot from weird Barbie, Kate McKinnon, who is wonderful and a fount of energy and good ideas in this movie. Stereotypical Barbie says she wants to, in her words, be real. And that's kind of the drama of this movie movie. But the point of being real, first of all, would be for Barbie not to look like stereotypical Barbie, a blonde with big breasts. And that's the big thing that's missing here.
3: Well it's hard to know. I mean I mean you, you have to start with stereotypical Barbie. And there were other Barbies. So I mean I remember when when we were young there was only one Barbie. And you know and and that was it was quickly pointed out that in addition to Body shaming women who didn't have the Barbie body, you know, it was also racist because they're not, not everybody is is white, you know. And over the years, they did try to expand the Barbie franchise. So I'm I'm more forgiving about that than maybe you all. All things considered, I mean, if one was were to attack the politics of it, um, and and which we love to do here at the Native Yes, Podcast, we do. <laughs> okay, is that I think one could point out that it does have a very binary sense of gender. That's the thing that's unmodern about it is there are Barbies and there are Kens and then the Michael Sarah character who could have somehow been something different to that or the Kate McKinnon character who could have somehow been something that isn't that. And I wonder two things about that. One is whether that if you're trying to do a mass hit, you wanted to go there or two, whether Mattel thought that's too much we you know suddenly we we don't want trans barbie we don't we don't want we don't want a barbie who's a vague we don't want a ken who's a vague you know <laughs> we want him and her but it's a very him and her movie with kind of faintly retro visions of what female and male are
0: you're absolutely right this is not a gender fluid uh, movie but, no, but the people who made barbie did have a lot of fun with feminist theory like when Barbie tells Gloria, her articulate friend in the real world, quote, by giving voice to the cognitive dissonance required to be a woman under the patriarchy, you've robbed it of its power, close quote. That's a joke for the gender studies grad students in the audience.
3: No, it is. And of course, because as we know, it's not true. It's even a better <laughs> joke. Um, you know, and because one of the things that's striking is that if you are of a certain age, is that the speech that that she gives, that the LA Times thought worthy of reprinting in whole, (laughs) such a speech was, I thought, oh, I I remember hearing essentially that speech from women in 1974. Yeah. Far from being a breakthrough feminist idea, this is a 50-year-old speech (laughs) that still has power and therefore proves the point that by saying it, it doesn't topple the patriarchy, because the patriarchy is still there. Probably one of the things I liked least in the film is, is the way that every now and then it has to like pause to tell you what to think. The great French filmmaker Robert Bresson, in his book of aphorisms, one of them was, hide your ideas, but not so that nobody can find them. And I think that probably when you're making a film like this, if you didn't have those speeches, huge parts of the audience may not actually get it.
0: Well, we salute you for... Being the only person to bring up Bresson in the context of the Barbie movie, it, you're you're blowing my mind here. So <laughs> oh, good, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> the movie does does wink at all of this throughout. Though there's that other great moment where Gloria, the real world depressed mother and housewife who works at Mattel, has been secretly drawing rogue Barbie models at, at her desk. Crippling shame, Barbie, and irrepressible thoughts of death, Barbie. So this is a lot of fun. The movie is having. We're not talking here about astronaut Barbie or doctor Barbie.
3: No, no, we're not. You know, there are lots of really good jokes. You know, some of the jokes about men and like wanting to watch the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League. You know, clearly is you know is very much of this moment. And and I think what's interesting is the way the jokes expand out to be of different kinds. So you have the kind of silly, almost kids could like jokes of the cars and the pink and it toppling over. And then you have the joke you mentioned earlier, the feminist theory joke and, and crippling the patriarchy with the speech. And you have a lot of different levels of the thing going on where you're trying to juggle it. I think the, the true feminist meaning of this film in the grand scheme is that it's the most successful movie ever made by a woman. And that Greta Gerwig has gone from herself being Barbie, because it's kind of an autobiographical film, being the kind of ditzy blonde in lots of movies, to being the person who can make the thing that's going to make a billion dollars. And on something that people weren't sure you could make a billion dollars with, do it, and have it be a film that's critically admired. The real feminist thing is that she did that much more than I think anything in the film.
0: And as Michelle Goldberg argued in her column in the New York Times, the unfortunate thing is the lesson the Hollywood studios have taken from this—not that they should make more films, feminist films for girls and women—but that they should make more films about toys, more product films.
3: Oh, oh yes, you know the Supreme Court got in early when you know when it declared that corporations are people, <laughs> yes. and, and, and we've now we're now to the point where products are characters. It is very much part of the way capitalism does start controlling levels of thinking and art that you couldn't even quite be, you would never have guessed that you should make movies about products. You know, there was the sneaker movie earlier this year, you know, a very enjoyable movie. What's interesting is that some of these movies about products are being made by some of the smartest people around and that they are quite entertaining and are more adult than a lot of the movies that are being made. So that you think you you go see a movie about Barbie, and it's actually more intelligent and more thoughtful and more more of a commentary on the world than probably 95%
0: of the movies that come out. So Barbie gives us a lot to think about, a lot to argue with, lots of great singing and dancing, lots of fun. What more could you want from a movie? Well, you might want to see a movie like Oppenheimer, a different kind of movie. I thought it was a terrific movie. Three hours of absorbing drama, compelling characters, sophisticated storytelling about real historical problems. What did you think?
3: I I thought it was going to be terrible going in, partly because I had not admired his film Dunkirk, Christopher Nolan's film Dunkirk, which I thought kind of made a hash of a historical thing. And I thought that it would be int- that I wasn't sure what he could do with this. Initially, at the beginning, I wasn't sure. There's a little hint of a beautiful mind to it, with, you know, when somebody's saying something and the f- sparks are flying before. Me. But having said all of that, it is an intelligent movie. It was subtle in ways I didn't expect it to be. You know, for us unrepentant old lefties, it's one of the rare Hollywood movies that spends quite so much time showing how even in the midst of World War II, the obsession with communism and finding subversives was was running through stuff when people were being heroic and giving their entire lives to defending the United States. The thought of lots of people in Washington is they may be communists, we have to stop them. I'm not sure I've seen any Hollywood movie that establishes how completely that that operation was going on, and the way people were thinking. So that in itself was was quite interesting. You know, Oppenheimer's own politics were you know were left kind of vague. I think, critics, I think Christopher Nolan isn't really interested in them, and he was kind of vague, I think, in his political thinking. Anyway, he wasn't like his brother Frank, who was more committed. And in fact, if you've ever seen Frank talk, you think, oh, the movie's a little unfair to Frank Oppenheimer, who was a brilliant physicist. He's made a little goofy in the film. but in fact, in real in real life, he's a beloved figure, you know, who knew lots about physics.
0: I wonder what you thought about uh, Christopher Nolan's decision. Not to show any documentary images of the effects of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This is the big criticism that that lots of people have raised because the theme of the movie is the horror of the bomb and how it looms large in Oppenheimer's own thinking about his own life. Manola Dargis in the New York Times wrote, "The horror of the bombings and the magnitude of the suffering they caused suffuse the film." Despite the fact that we don't see any documentary footage, do you think that that is adequate?
3: I didn't feel that that I needed to see it. I, th- I thought that that a lot of that footage is some of the most famous footage of the last hundred years. You could imagine if you showed it people saying you're exploiting the death and murder of those people to make a Hollywood movie about about a famous American. I didn't think it was any less any less powerful. There's a bad scene in the film, I think, where Oppenheimer's talking. And he's seeing the people turn into the Hiroshima victims. I, I just didn't like that scene. Also, he didn't see it happen. He saw the one bomb. He, he was in the United States. He wasn't down there with a newsreel camera. He felt it in the moment that it happened without seeing it.
0: Yeah. yeah. You
3: know, and, 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 for, and for most people, that's what it was. And Oppenheimer wasn't as good in fighting against it as he should have been, probably and the film doesn't let him off the hook we do see in lots of ways what's interesting is how he is a vacillating guy who clearly at some level wants to do the thing partly because you're doing it and you know he is a prince his antagonist in in the film comes straw played by robert downey jr very very well by robert downey jr who who becomes his enemy there are two american jews okay who meet And Oppenheimer is the princeling who comes from the family that has Picassos and Van Goghs on the wall. And Straw is selling shoes at the same point. And Oppenheimer is more brilliant than he is. And so you you have their hatred going together. But the princeling Oppenheimer, Straw says of him something almost that the wife says, Kitty, which is essentially you wanted to do it and be the hero. And you want to be the hero of stopping it once you did it. You want credit on both sides to be both the creator of the bomb and the greatest advocate against the bomb. And I think that you can imagine that being part of him his entire life being the special chosen one. And, and you see that in the film. The film, the film doesn't say that,
0: but it shows it. And that's one of the great things about this film, is what a complex figure they portray without making it easy to understand.
3: And yet I don't think Chris Nolan understands him. You know, one of the interesting things for me with the structure of the film, and it's something I like maybe a little less, is the structure makes it interesting where you start with the hearings where his, you know, where his security clearance is at stake. So you know from the beginning it's there. The only problem with doing it out of sequence is it creates a sense of inevitability where once you know that he's going to get in trouble later. Everything he says and does, you start thinking, is this going to be the thing that's going to do it? And also, one too many people tell him, you know you're going to get yourself in real trouble if you don't do this. (laughs) There's somehow in which it's it's like a a chronicle of of a fall foretold. Because from the built into his beginning is already the ending. And that's slightly reductive because things could have gone in a different way. But if you told the story straightforwardly, it, everyone would say, "Oh, it's just another crummy old biopic," you know, and, <laughs> and, it would, and it would seem less. It would seem less interesting, and this allows him to Nolan to cut corners in not having to show you everything, including lots of boring stuff. So that you know, as so as a narrative feat, I think it's actually quite successful. It just it does it does tinge the whole sense with, "Oh yes, this had to happen."
0: Well, speaking as a historian, I was very interested in how they convey the debate among the scientists about whether to drop the bomb on a civilian target, a very important historical question that Christopher Nolan wants to make part of this film. Yes. One historical element is missing. They talk a little bit about the importance of Russia in the American decision to drop the bomb, but there's a lot more that they leave out the movie does say pretty strongly that the motivation of our leaders was to save American lives by by forcing Japan to surrender without an invasion that would have cost maybe thousands of American lives. That's what most people think. But they do have Oppenheimer say one time late in the film that Japan was on the verge of surrender anyway. And they do make it clear that the Trinity test was scheduled to come before the Potsdam conference. The Potsdam came After the German surrender, it was a meeting between Truman and Stalin to decide on the structure of the post-war world, and it was very important that Stalin understand that America had the bomb. Uh, But there's a lot more historical evidence that a major reason for dropping it was not only to let Russia know that we had the bomb, but that we would use it against our enemies, not just to end World War II, but we could use it during the Cold War II. And we did not want Russia to enter the war against Japan, which they did two days after the Hiroshima bombing. uh, Russia invaded the uh, peripheral islands of Japan. That threatened to make Russia part of the post-war settlement with Japan, which we really wanted to prevent. We wanted Japan to surrender unconditionally to the United States and not to Russia and the United States. That's not in the movie. It's kind of a complicated story, but there's a lot of other complicated parts of this debate that they do tell. And I, I think that should have been in the movie.
3: It should be. I understand why it isn't, because it's, it's taking you two minutes to explain it. And equally, there was something in the, the, the film called The Day After Trinity, which is now showing on television, which is a very good film. Frank Oppenheimer, I, I believe, is the one who says a very true thing. If it ever came out that you that you'd had these weapons and invaded Japan rather than using them as a political thing, every soldier who died going in would be used against you in election. And you know that Harry Truman, not being, I think, a gra- a grand thinker, would be thinking. That's bad for me politically. And so like at that simple level, leaving aside grand strategic things, there's the small thing, which is I don't want anybody saying I didn't kill everybody I could, which means this is to say that it's a hugely overdetermined decision. And one that was taken, Oppenheimer's opinion, you know, and none of the scientists opinion mattered. The military people in Truman had already made the decision. What's touching in a way, was somehow, Oppenheimer's got the job to run things because supposedly he can like, he's the one who can hold things together. He's got the biggest intellect. And what he can't see is that they're all functionaries. They've taken what they want from the scientists. And what they don't want really is the scientists' opinions.
0: Uh, One last thing. Oppenheimer cost $100 million to make. They spent another $100 million promoting them. That's what they spend making and promoting superhero movies. But this one is not the Avengers. It's not Spider-Man. This one is a really serious, good movie. And it made $400 million in its first 10 days. So I was saying to a friend, this is the first time maybe in
3: maybe a decade, maybe more, that on the same day there were two films that came out that reminded me maybe of the glorious days of maybe 1970s film, where on a weekend, you could actually have two films that came out and you thought, oh, these are actually good and interesting. Even if you didn't like them, you thought, these are real films trying to do something. I would just say, as we're linking it to Barbie, that just as I was saying that Barbie is about, is about Greta Gerwig, partly, it's autobiographical. You know, I think Oppenheimer, is a, a Christopher Nolan clearly has some identification with Oppenheimer. He's the guy who makes blockbusters. He's the person who makes hit after hit. And I'm betting that like Oppenheimer, having made hit after hit, when he goes into the studio people, they all still act like they're the smart ones and really know what's going on and that he's their tool.
0: Barbie and Oppie, two terrific movies. Our conclusion, hooray for Hollywood. John Powers is critic at large on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. Thank you, John. It's great to have you on the show. I love being here. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vanden is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.